Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host this week, Dr. John Cook. And with me today is Dr. Joel Richard Paul. He is a professor of constitutional and international law at the University of California Hastings Law School in San Francisco. He's the author of Unlikely Allies. How a Merchant, a Playwright, and a Spy Saved the American Revolution, which was named one of the best books of 2009 by the Washington Post. He lives in Northern California. Uh, Joe, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. This book, without precedent, John Marshall and His Times, gave me a whole lot more insight into the impact that, that, that John Marshall had on American justice, on separation of powers, on the federal government, and how it operates. Uh, just so much. You said at some point that he was uh, to judicial law what George Washington was to politics. That's really correct. Really an instrumental yes. figure. Yeah. Yeah. So, for six... Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. For six decades, John Marshall really dominated uh, all of the political events that occurred in the nation's infancy. And uh, he was uh, not just a, a chief justice of the Supreme Court longer than anyone else for 34 years, but he was also uh, prominent as a, a soldier in the Revolutionary Army. Uh, he was an important political leader in Virginia, the head of the Federalist Party. Uh, he was an important member of Congress, uh, a diplomat who conducted the XYZ affair with France. Uh, and Secretary of State before he became Chief Justice. So he just had many uh, uh, political lives and an enormous impact on our nation. In fact, I think that no one in the founding generation did more than Marshall did uh, to shape what our nation has become, and, and nobody did more than him to really hold the country together during its infancy. Yes, and it's some really important influences we want to touch on the, the things that shaped his uh, judicial philosophy before he got to the court. Uh, and you mentioned some of those, those lives that he led. But let's start with uh, just a contrast, because up until I read this book, I held Thomas Jefferson in total high esteem in the rarefied air of a myth, myth, mythified hero, uh, founder of Virginia, the University of Virginia Declaration of Independence, uh, the Louisiana Purchase, so many important things he did. But while a fine ideologue and an intellect, he was he was a uh, politico first, wasn't he? He, he advocated for political causes and, and was a, a distant cousin of, of Marshall. He was a uh, on the other side of most events politically. Yeah, the, Marshall and Jefferson were second cousins, and they had both a familial rivalry and also a political rivalry. Um, uh, uh, first of all, uh, Marshall's family uh, grew up in in, in poverty. Um, the money that his family would have otherwise inherited went to uh, Peter Jefferson, who was Jefferson's father. And Jefferson grew up in enormous wealth at Tuckahoe, which is a large plantation in Virginia with 500 slaves, great privileges and wealth, while Marshall and his 15 brothers and sisters crowded into a two-room log cabin on the frontiers of Virginia. Um, Marshall later married the daughter of the woman who Jefferson first fell in love with, and uh, Jefferson had asked her to marry him. She rejected Jefferson's proposal, and then her daughter marries Marshall. So there's a familial tension there, but also politically, uh, 
Jefferson um, believed in in states' rights and in preserving uh, an agrarian-based uh, economy that was based on slave labor, while uh, Marshall opposed slavery uh, and worked for having a strong national government with us, which could provide a strong national defense uh, against foreign influences, uh, and uh, he hoped would eventually regulate slavery out of existence. So the two of them were uh, diametrically opposed politically. Mm -hmm. Now, even though Marshall was opposed to slavery, he had a few slaves that, that uh, supported his life in his home when he was an adult. Yes, he, he, he did not have clean hands. He, he had 15 slaves uh, in his own household. Um, but he, uh, uh, I think importantly, treated them very humanely. Um, he was a guy who uh, refused to ever separate slave families. Uh, his slaves had their own homes. They had their own family life. Uh, they were allowed to keep uh, uh, small parcels of property that they could they could produce um, uh, crops that they could sell for their own income. Um, so it was a little different than plantation slavery uh, in Virginia. Uh, he also uh, represented slaves pro bono against their masters in Virginia. As a member of the Virginia State Legislature, he worked for manumission to emancipate, to allow uh, slaveholders to emancipate their slaves. Uh, and he started the Virginia Colonization Society, which uh, established a homeland in Africa uh, for uh, slaves to return to if they wished. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's look at John Marshall, the man, and how his, his attitude was shaped by his early years. Let's start with your chapter entitled The Frontier Soldier. He was serving at Valley Forge, right? Yes, he was at Valley Forge uh, that terrible winter uh, where you know the men were just uh, suffering from hunger and a lack of uh, clothing and uh, shelter. And, and Marshall um, distinguished himself by being sort of a prankster and uh, being somebody who was uh, very funny and entertained everybody. He always kept everybody's spirits up. George Washington named him Judge Advocate General of the U.S. Army uh, before Marshall had had any law school training. Um, uh, so he became kind of a leader among men uh, at a very young age uh, at Valley Forge. Uh -huh. And he was influenced by Washington a great deal, and, and I was disappointed to learn how distinct the conditions were for officers versus the enlisted men. But um, uh, Steuben affected him as well. It's an interesting story about Steuben because he was uh, he, he was misled a little bit about what he was going to face when he got to the Valley Forge. Right, right. So, so, so uh, uh, the, uh, Steuben um, is a Prussian, uh, claimed to be a Prussian uh, a general and a baron. Um, uh, he was none of those things. Um, uh, he was Prussian, but he was not a baron and he was not a general. Um, uh, he had faked his resume uh, in order to get this commission in, in um, uh, the Continental Army, hoping that he was going to get some you know, wonderful promotion. Um, but in fact, when he got to Valley Forge, he discovered that the army was in, uh, was in a state of, uh, of chaos. Uh, and it was really Steuben who transforms the U.S. Army. He's a great general, uh, a great uh, a drill master, rather, uh, who is able to uh, train the soldiers very quickly uh, to teach them some basic maneuvers that um, they, uh, and, and to inspire the men. And Marshall and Steuben became very close friends. Mm -hmm. And there's something about Steuben's personality that I think Marshall carried forward a little bit, and that was uh, being able to relate to the men uh, with a good sense of humor, 
Yes, that's right. Uh, it's two things, really. It's, part of it is that, that, that uh, Steuben uh, understood something which I think Washington did not understand, which was the importance about uh, having sort of personal warmth and relationship with the men that, that, made, that helped to inspire the men and give them confidence. But also uh, what Steuben taught Marshall was um, that sometimes uh, in life, uh, appearances come before realities. And so Steuben created the appearance of being a general. Uh, he created the appearance of an army. Uh, and uh, the reality kind of followed suit. And uh, um, in some ways, Marshall did the same thing in his own life because he had to really, he was a self-made man who had to recreate himself uh, in order to rise from this very humble frontier background uh, to becoming a, a diplomat and a statesman and a chief justice. And on the way to that rise, one of the things that struck me was uh, he, he studied a while at William & Mary, he studied law. Um, yes. And it, it, after a, a few weeks, he quit, but he took an examination of the bar and was granted a license to practice. And that license was signed by Jefferson, which he probably regretted all of his life after that. That's right. That's right. And you know, and, and the time he spent at, at, at William and Mary is interesting. I mean, he, you know, here's a guy. He's he's only had one year of grammar school. That's his only formal education, and, and he decides to take this law course at William and Mary, primarily because he's in love with a young woman, uh, Polly Ambler, who and her family has moved to Williamsburg, and so to give himself an excuse for being in Williamsburg, he signs up for this law course. He's there for six weeks, and then Polly's family decides to move to Richmond. So he quits his course, and he moves to Richmond uh, to be near Polly. And he decides to run for the state legislature to give himself an excuse to be in Richmond. So um, it was really a story. A part of the story is a story, uh, is a love story about his relationship with Polly and um, uh, the, ex the extremes that he goes to in order to pursue her. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, during his early legal career, he uh, he defended debtors quite a bit, and that that made a, a mark for himself too as a hired gun. Right. Well, he 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 he, he uh, both defended uh, Virginians who were in debt to uh, British creditors, and also later also defended the British creditors who were owed money uh, by uh, Virginia debtors. And so, when he defended the British creditors, that was a lot less popular in Virginia. Yes, of course he was. And uh, there are many things that made him less popular among Virginians throughout his history. Um, yes, that's he, right. He also uh, yes. has... <laughs> Go ahead. I'm his, his, you know, he, basically, uh, um, many of his decisions uh, on the Supreme Court uh, were intended to strengthen the authority of the federal courts and of the federal government uh, over the states. And it was a very uh, widely understood that this posed a threat to the institution of slavery, that Marshall hoped that eventually Congress would have sufficient authority that they would be able to regulate slavery out of existence. Mm -hmm. Now, in the background of this love story of, of Polly, uh, there's, some, there's some real tragedy. She was frail and weak and sick after losing yeah. some baby, and that it affected her, whole, her health her whole life. Yes, you know, they, she married. So Marshall fell in love with Polly when she was a 13 year old girl, and he waited until she came of age to marry her. So here he's pursuing this young, young, young girl, and uh, he marries her at a young age when um, she turns 16. She has 10 children, uh, four of them died in infancy, and she is so overcome with grief that she 
uh, basically has a, a kind of psychic breakdown, and she lives most of their married life confined to an upstairs bedroom, and yet Marshall remains very devoted to her throughout their lives. Mm -hmm. Also, during this time period, uh, early on in, in, in Marshall's life, there was Shay's Rebellion, which was one of the deciding points that convinced him, along with his colleague James Madison, that we couldn't simply amend the Articles of Federation. We needed a new federal constitution with more centralized right. power so that the, the, the government could defend uh, the rights of people to for their own security and safety. That's, that's right. That's right. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's really the concerns about um, uh, the, the, both internal threats and external threats uh, that um, turns Marshall into a federalist believer in mm -hmm. a strong central government to defend the country's security. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson was one of the leading opponents of a new constitution. Yes. Uh, Je well, Jefferson's position on the constitution is a little bit uh, uh, ambivalent. Uh, he... he he opposes the Constitution in its present form. He says that he might support a Constitution. He sometimes says that he might support a Constitution that has a Bill of Rights attached to it. But he doesn't ever really come out and endorse the Constitution or support it in any way. If, if he had, it would have been much easier, perhaps, to get the Constitution ratified. But it's, it's John Marshall and James Madison who persuade Virginians uh, to ratify the Constitution. And after ratification debates in Virginia... Um, Madison's a um, you know, great thinker. Uh, he's a very brilliant man, but he's kind of he's sort of a failure as a politician. He's a bit of a nerd. Uh, he's got a sort of a squeaky high voice. He's not a good speaker. And uh, so um, he could not have won the day on his own. Marshall is a great schmoozer. He's a guy. He's very funny. He tells great stories. He's Lincoln-esque in his personality. And he takes all of the delegates out for drinks at his favorite tavern and, and, and basically talks them into it. And the Constitution is ratified uh, in Virginia by 10 votes. Without those 10 votes, uh, Virginia would not have been a part of the Constitution. George Washington would not have been our first president, and we would not have had a nation. <laughs> yeah, very important impact that, that he had in that regard. And, and uh, his, his charm and his ability to socialize well with, with his colleagues, uh, served him well later on. Yeah. I, Marshall's influence uh, is a consequence both of his intellect, which was enormous, uh, and uh, just as importantly of his personality. He was just a great guy. He was, he was somebody you'd want to go out for drinks with. And um, when he's on the court uh, during his 34 years as chief justice, every judge who's appointed to the court after him is appointed by uh, a a Jeffersonian Republican a president who can't stand Marshall and wants to reverse his jurisprudence. And each of those judges comes on the court, you know, uh, determined to overturn Marshall's decisions. And Marshall, uh, with his intellect and his personality, manages to seduce them. Uh, and he, he always manages to forge a consensus on the court. And so uh, virtually all of his decisions, but for 36 of them, are unanimous opinions, and that is a remarkable record of leadership. Especially given they were on the opposite side of the political spectrum. Absolutely. Uh, but a lot of them came over to his side, and there was a lot of consensus because of his charm. 
because of the way he uh, worked with them. I mean, there was really a fraternal order in the early days of the Supreme Court. Um, it wasn't held in, as in high esteem as, as the Senate and the presidency. That's absolutely right. Uh, you know, in the in the famous case of Marbury versus Madison, decided in 1803, um, where Madison is being sued as Secretary of State uh, 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 by William Marbury, um, Madison doesn't even bother showing up at the court. He doesn't even bother sending uh, an attorney to represent him because he thought so little of the court's authority that he didn't really regard. He didn't take them seriously. And this is the guy who drafted. The Constitution. So um, the court had no authority, had no esteem, was not really seen as a co-equal branch of the government. When they were designing the Capitol in Washington, they forgot to build a courthouse. Incredible. But the Mm -hmm. court had to find a home for itself in a committee room uh, on the first floor of the Senate. Uh, uh, That was the only place they could find to meet. Uh, So they're sort of crowded into a little committee room. Um, that was the Supreme Court of the United States. Marshall's the guy who transforms the court, who makes the court a co-equal branch of the government. And he does it by the force of his personality and his intellect. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot in here about entangling alliances um, that yes. uh, affects who he was. Uh, and and mm-hmm. he really was, was libeled and slandered uh, throughout the early part of his career because he believed in uh, a standing military and a strong executive to safeguard liberty. Um, yes. Some hurtful things were said, and a lot of it was from the Virginia press. Yes, right, right. He was a very controversial figure in Virginia because uh, he opposed Jefferson. Um, uh, you know, the, the difference in their experience is so dramatic. Um, in, the, in, the, in the Revolutionary War, um, Marshall's um, Marshall uh, is the head of a regiment that he, go, he goes to Jefferson, who's then governor of Virginia, and says, hey, uh, we need more money uh, in Virginia to defend this, the, the, the Commonwealth against the British. And Jefferson says, I'm busy designing the new capital in, uh, in Richmond. Don't bother me. Uh, he's not interested in, in trying to defend against the British invasion. And as a result, the British do invade Virginia. Uh, Jefferson, as, as governor, uh, is a bit cowardly, and he just runs away and leaves uh, the capital undefended. The British come in, they burn the capital, um, and it's Marshall and his regiment that come in and basically drive the British out. Uh, so Marshall's a guy who's committed to a strong defense. Uh, he's aware of the danger posed by, by foreign powers. Jefferson, by contrast, when he was the Secretary of State under, under President Washington, he is literally colluding with the French uh, to try to undermine Washington's foreign policy, uh, to try to get the United States involved in a war against Spain, which we frankly could not have afforded at the time. So they're just uh, diametrically opposed when it comes to foreign policy issues. It's, it's uh, Marshall who believes uh, in a strong national defense, and, and Jefferson uh, believes uh, rather in an entangling alliance with the French. Mm-hmm. Now, the French bring up an interesting part of, of what shaped uh, uh, Marshall's learning from a, a very slick manipulator named Talleyrand. <laughs> he and he and two uh, colleagues were there to try and negotiate a, a reasonable settlement, and uh, Talleyrand kept uh, through indirect sources 
asking for a bribe as part of the deal, along with yes. payment of all that they owed the French from the Revolutionary War. And it just frustrated him to no end, right? Yeah, you know, this is one of my favorite parts of the book. In fact, originally I was going to write a book just about this, those chapters. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Marshall is initially sent to France because uh, the French are interfering with American shipping. Um, and they're interfering with American shipping because they don't like John Adams and they're trying to, uh, you know, uh, express their uh, unhappiness for the fact that Adams refuses to aid them in their war against Britain. So Marshall and two other men are sent to France to negotiate with the French to try to end this interference in American shipping. The, the French foreign minister, Talleyrand, who is this, you know, wonderfully amoral, notoriously uh, sort of uh, sinister character in, in French politics, um, he, he's a brilliant uh, manipulator. And, and Talleyrand says to Marshall, hey, before I'll even sit down and negotiate with you, you've got to pay me a $4 million bribe. And Marshall says, no way. The other two are more uh, kind of ambivalent about whether or not they should pay the bribe. But Marshall refuses to pay the bribe. So as a result, um, Talleyrand sends uh, all sorts. He, he basically seizes their passports. He refuses to let them leave France. Uh, he, um, he sends all sorts of spies uh, uh, to spy on them, and he sends various people to threaten them or try to blackmail them to get to give him this bribe. And Marshall remains firm. And what Marshall doesn't realize is that the landlady he's living with, who's this beautiful, uh, brilliant uh, uh, a woman who uh, may or may not have been the illegitimate daughter of uh, the great French writer Voltaire, um, she, in fact, is working as a spy for Talleyrand, and she tries to seduce him. And so it's, it's just a wonderful sort of crazy story about this. And all of this turns into what's known as the XYZ affair that some of your listeners may remember. Basically, Marshall's letters to uh, back to um, President Adams describing all of the corruption in the French government, uh, those letters get published and are so damaging to the Republican Party in the United States, um, that um, uh, Marshall is seen as a great hero for having stood up to the French. The Republicans are tainted by their relationship with the French, and Marshall is swept into office as as a member of Congress and leader of the Federalists in Congress. We we won't be able to touch on Citizen Genet, but that whole affair with uh, him rallying the Republicans for support of France was a big deal. But uh, I had a great deal of fun want... writing about Tally and about <laughs> Citizen Genet as well. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Very interesting. And we're we're coming down to the wire here, but I don't want to I don't want to lose sight of the impact of some of the most significant decisions uh, of of the the Marshall Court, mm-hmm. uh, Supreme Law of the Land, and so forth. Marbury versus Madison. You mentioned, and it, it's interesting how wide an impact that had, given that the case was supposedly about somebody not being delivered their appointment to a judge, to a justice of the peace. Right, exactly. Um, you know, that case, one of the things I discovered in my research was that that case was basically a setup. Um, uh, John Marshall uh, and his brother, James Marshall, the federal judge, uh, basically concocted that case uh, in order to create a vehicle um, to assert two principles. One, that the court has the authority to strike down laws of Congress uh, as unconstitutional. And two, just as importantly, uh, that uh, the court has the authority to review actions of the executive branch. 
Uh, Marshall did this, um, and he even suborned perjury from his brother, um, because he felt he needed a way to defend the court's independence against the threat posed by Jefferson. Jefferson wanted the authority to be able to uh, remove all of the judges. He wanted to be able to hire and fire justices in the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, Marshall was trying to defend the court's uh, integrity and the court's independence. And he succeeded in doing so in, Mar- in the case of Marbury versus Madison. Mm-hmm. The Steamboat case is also significant in, in how it uh, gave uh, expanded the scope of Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. Very important. Gibbons versus Ogden is a case where Marshall establishes the principle that uh, Congress's authority to regulate commerce not only involves commerce between states, but also commerce within states that has some effect on interstate commerce. Um, the reason that case is so important is it was, a, it, and people understood this at the time, is that the real aim here was not just to try to liberalize uh, transportation between the states, which itself was important, but also uh, to undermine the institutions of slavery. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the the later years uh, were not as as, uh, as easy for Marshall because he, he had lost some of his influence over his colleagues and some of the, the appointments from later presidents really didn't uh, – weren't quite so agreeable and easy to influence. That, that's, that's true. But probably the most important of the later decisions he rendered was the case of Worcester versus Georgia, which is the case that establishes really the foundations of Native American law in the United States. He establishes the principle in Worcester versus Georgia that Native Americans can hold on to their tribal lands free from interference from the states. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting twist for Andy Jackson, uh, who President Jackson was was one who wanted to relocate the Indians, and there's the story of the Trail of Tears and all that. But at some point, it came down to a nullification by the states that he didn't want. And he wound up siding with Marshall. Right, it's a complicated story <laughs> that we don't have time to get into. But mm-hmm. yes, uh, that that's right. That's correct. Yeah, uh, he lost his wife near the end of his life. He had some failing health issues, and when he passed on, I think the the, the the conclusion of your book really shows both his impact and who he was as a man from a very objective point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, Marshall had a, 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 he had a long life, a, a very full life. Um, uh, of the ten children that he fathered, uh, only four of them. Only three of them uh, ultimately would survive him, his, his death. Uh, so he, he lost a great deal. He was uh, very crushed by the loss of his wife, Polly, who he has devoted to, even though she had spent their married life confined to an upstairs bedroom. He, um, you know, he was uh, losing influence. He was really the last Federalist uh, alive. But the important thing here is, I think, that Marshall... Marshall's federalism lives on in Abraham Lincoln and in the in the Whigs and the Republican, the eventual Lincoln Republican Party, as opposed to the Jeffersonian Republican Party. I mean, he's really the guy who who establishes the basic principles that um, inform uh, Lincoln's uh, uh, Lincoln's philosophy about the rights of states uh, versus the rights of the national government. Mm-hmm. The, the, there's, a, there's a closing passage here that I just must read. More than any other American, 
John Marshall set the foundation of the republic that had guided the nation for more than two centuries. He had the courage of his imagination, the wisdom to find common ground, and the grace to hold together a fragile union. With his passing, who would save the union now? What a wonderful conclusion. Yes. Well, I, you know, I, I really believe that uh, that has a great deal of relevance today, that I think that we need uh, people on the court and we need people in government who are committed to finding uh, compromise and consensus and uh, seeking to hold together our fragile union. Thank you. That's all the time we have. Unfortunately, we've been talking with Joel Richard Paul, the author of Without Precedent, Chief Justice John Marshall and His Times. I remind our listeners, if you don't catch our regularly scheduled broadcast, you can also hear our broadcast on our YouTube channel, Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. Thanks for listening.